couple months ago, my wife, Corey, and I, we, we, we have four kids, for those that may not know. My wife, Corey, and I, we, uh, we were at Walmart. That's what you do on a Saturday night in Cherokee County, right? But we, uh, we were at Walmart. This was several months ago, and, and I don't even remember why we went. I, I don't think you ever know why you go to Walmart. We just went to Walmart for something. And we were walking around Walmart, and, and uh, my son, Branson, had a birthday coming up. Branson is now six. At the time, he was five years old. And so at some point in our travels around the great store that is Walmart, we, we made our way to the toy section. He wanted to show us some things that he wanted for his birthday. And so when we got done there, we began kind of walking back towards the front of the store. And, and then Branson remembered that he had forgotten to show his mom this other thing that he wanted. And so he, he begged and pleaded, Mom, please, can you just take me back over? I just need to show you that one more, you know, sword thing that I can beat the mess out of my brothers with. And please, can I just... So she, you know, gave in at some point, And she took Branson back over to the toy section while my job... I just had one job. Just get the other three kids and the cart to the front of the store. That's all I had the job to do. And so we start making our way towards the front of the store. And along the way, my oldest son, Cooper, who's eight years old, saw a shirt that he wanted. And, and he's like, Dad, please, I've got some money. I've got my birthday money that I haven't spent yet. I really want that shirt. Please, can I have that shirt? And, and I don't know if you have a child or have had a child or want a child like I have in our oldest son, Cooper. But Cooper doesn't understand the word no. He thinks no means beg harder. So I said, buddy, I don't think we're going to do that. No, we're not going to get it tonight. Oh, please, daddy, please. I've, I've got my own money. Why can't I spend my own money, daddy? Please, can I just? And so in, at some point I had turned my attention, just had just the one job is all I had. Just get us to the front of the store. I turned my attention away from the one job I had of all of my children and our cart and all the stuff that we had to Cooper and this shirt and what he was trying to convince me to do. And so I finally convinced him, no, we're not buying the shirt. We're not getting it. And so I turned around to the cart. And when I did, I didn't see Tucker. Now, at this point, Tucker was three. He's since turned four. But I didn't see my three-year-old Tucker. And so Tucker tends to kind of wander around a little bit. And so I just thought, you know, he's hiding under the clothes racks or something. And so I just said, you know, kind of quietly, not trying to make a scene. Tucker, at this point, I'm, I'm very cheerful. It's no problem. Tucker. Hello, Tucker, daddy needs you, Tucker. I don't hear a thing. And normally if I don't hear him respond, I hear the little pitter patter of feet as he's hiding somewhere else, right? I don't hear that either. So now I'm, you know, I'm, I, don't, I don't get panicky. I'm just kind of looking around. I'm kind of seeing if I see any shadows dashing between aisles somewhere near me. And I, I don't see anything. I don't hear anything. I don't see anything. And here's my thought. This is probably a bad thought. My thought wasn't someone has taken my child. My thought was, I've got to explain to Corey why I don't have all the children she sent me to the front of the store with. And so I, I, I'm, I'm trying to, okay, Tucker, Tucker, where are you at? And I, I keep looking around. I keep trying to find him. And there comes a moment where I do begin to panic a little bit. I mean, I've walked all the way around the section of the store that we've started in, and I don't see him. I don't hear him. I think we're in trouble because nothing's falling off the shelves. Nothing. He's not pulling any. I mean, I'm like, where? And there's no noise that is unaccounted for that would be attributed to him. And so I'm a little nervous now. And so there was a, there was an elderly lady standing nearby. And I think she had seen what I was doing. And she seemed a little concerned, too. And it's probably not the best thing I've ever done. But I just said, ma'am, will you stand right here with my other two children while I go and find 
the one that I've lost? She could have been an axe murderer. I don't know. She looked nice. She had given me candy. I don't know. No, I'm. And so I, she stands there. And at this point, I really am getting panicked. And I start literally running around Walmart trying to find my son without notifying my wife that I have lost one of the children that she loves so much. I'm running between aisles. I'm running up and down the aisles. At this point, my whispers, Tucker, Tucker, have turned into literal screams. Tucker! Tucker! I mean, I'm screaming, running through Walmart. And about the time that I turn towards the front of the store to run to the front to get the manager to just lock the store down, I see a shadow dart between the aisles. And I look, and there's Tucker riding a bicycle (laughs) into the lawn and garden section. I, I, I gently removed him from the bicycle and gently carried him back to the elderly woman who had not stolen the other two kids. And Corey walks up, and we good to go? We're good. Let's go. We're leaving. I mean, today might be the first time she ever found out that that happened. No, I immediately told her, and she was very happy with me. I don't know how it happened. I mean, one minute he was there, and the next minute he was gone. I mean, I'm not kidding when I tell you the conversation I had with Cooper about the shirt he wanted, it wasn't like a 10-minute conversation. It lasted no no more than 15, 20 seconds. And, And at one point, I saw him here, and I'm having this conversation, and I look, and he's gone. And I don't know where he's at. I can't find him. And so today, we're starting a brand new series called Storytellers. And I want, if you've got your Bibles, to flip with me to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to tell a story that's very similar to my Walmart experience, I think. We're going to talk over the next few weeks about stories of individuals out of Hebrews 11. These stories, this is called the Hall of Faith or uh, the Faith chapter, whatever you might refer to it. These are just incredible stories of people that lived by faith and did these incredible things by faith. And today, we're going to start this series by looking at a man with a really weird name. His name is Enoch. And this is what it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5. It says, By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Now, this is all that we really get about the story of Enoch in Hebrews chapter 11. There's another verse that ties to this we'll talk about in just a minute. But the story of Enoch is really, other than one other short reference, the only other place Enoch's really referenced in Scripture is in Genesis chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, kind of hold your thumb in Hebrews 11, jump back to Genesis 5. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Chapter 5 is obviously the fifth chapter of the first book of the Bible, if you want to flip there. Genesis chapter 5. This is a chapter in Scripture where we are given kind of a rundown of some of the early human beings who lived and walked on the earth. It's a, a kind of a, there's a rhythm to this chapter. And in, in Genesis chapter 5, verses 21 through 24, we, we read about and are introduced to the story of Enoch. And this is what it says. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. I guess they weren't as important as the one that was named there. Although Enoch lived a total of 300 and altogether, I'm sorry, not although, altogether Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God, then he was no more because God took him away. 
Kind of like Tucker. He was just taken away. I, I just didn't know where he was at, right? And here's the thing. This chapter is very rhythmic, right? If you read ahead or you read behind where we've been, here's how the rhythm goes. It says, when so-and-so had lived a certain number of years, they had a son. And then after they had that son, they lived a certain number of more years, and then they died. I mean, that, that if you read from the beginning of Genesis chapter 5, the several verses, several people that are introduced to us over the previous verses, that's, that's the rhythm. When so-and-so lived this number of years, they had this son, they lived this much longer, then they died. Until we get to the story of Enoch. And it starts just like the others. It says, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he had a son. After that son, he walked faithfully with the Lord another 300 years. All right? And instead of at this point saying that he was, then he died, it says, then he was no more. Right? Which sounds kind of like death, except that he didn't die. Now, here's what we're not told. We're not told how he was taken. We're, we're not told where he went. I don't know, and, and I'm, I'm conjecturing a little bit here. I don't know if he told his family goodnight, went into his tent for bed, and the next morning, you know, it's like, man, dad never sleeps this late. And they went to the tent, and he was gone. I, I, I don't know if that's how it happened. I don't know if they all stood around the campfire, and he says, hey, I'm about to go up now, and... You know, I'll, I'll see you when I see you. I'm not really sure how this plays out. And, you know, he's gone. I don't know. Beam me up, Scotty. I have no idea how he was taken. We're not given that part of the story. We just know that he lived faithfully for 300 years after his first son is born. He had other sons and daughters. And he walked with God. And then he was no more. Because God took him away. Now, if you were to read that, and don't get hung up on all the years and how old they were. and all, Don't get hung up. That's another story for another time. But if you're to read that, here's the question that I would ask. What made Enoch so special? Like, why in the rhythm of this chapter that they lived and they had kids and they lived some more and then they died, why do we find out and why don't we know more? I would think we should have a lot more to the story about the guy that was commended as one who pleased God. So much so that God looked at him after he walked faithfully with God. So much that God looked at him and said... You don't deserve to die. I'm just going to take you. Gone. Like, I'm not sure. We're told about Noah, who's referenced in Genesis chapter 5. A few verses later, we read about Noah. Noah was faithful and righteous in a land of unrighteousness. And so God uses him to build an ark. And, and that's the story next week we're going to talk about. And so you need to be here because I'm going to tell you something you've never heard about the story of Noah. So don't miss it. And I mean, we read about that and we're told all the story of Noah. This is all we really have about Enoch. So what do we... What, what, what can we pull from this story? What can we really find out about pleasing God? I mean, if he was commended as one who pleased God and he's referenced in the hall of faith. And when we read his story, he walked faithfully with God for 300 years. What does it look like to please God? That's really where I want us to spend our time today, because I think a lot of us are trying to figure that out. How do I please God? And it's not your fault that you're thinking that. It's not your fault that you're wondering that. It's not your fault that you wrestle with that. Because from an early age, we are ingrained with the idea of pleasing people. Think about it. I just referenced my kids. But here's what we do with our kids. I don't know how, how you do if you have kids or if you were a kid. I don't know how you do it. But here's here. Everybody was a kid. That was funny. Um, here's how we do it with my kids. When they do something, we video it. 
Right? It doesn't matter what they do. It's like, oh, you walked for the first time. Let's video that and capture that forever. And then, oh, you threw your brother to the ground. We want to remember that forever. And anyway, so here's what happens. From an early age, we show them that there are certain things they do that we find pleasure in and certain things we, that they do that we are displeased with, right? Because they walk for the first time and we clap and cheer and capture that. And we call Papa and Mimi and Grandma and Grandpa and Nana and whatever weird concoction of words you are as a grandparent. We call you. They just pooped in the potty for the first time. Let's cheer them on. Yeah, you pooped. Woo! All right. Nobody cheers me on. I don't know why. What's... When do we stop cheering for that? I'm not really sure when that happens. But we just they, it, it's pleasing to us. And our kids find out that they can do certain things that pleases us. Right? And then they, they start playing sports, maybe. I don't, maybe you didn't play sports. I just got done this summer coaching a seven- and eight-year-old all-star baseball team. It was a fun experience. We had a blast. But here's what I noticed very quickly in the season of the kids that I was coaching. My third baseman would go down to get a ground ball, and that ball would go under his glove to the outfield. You know what he did? He didn't look to the outfield to find the ball. He looked to his mom and dad in the, in the stands. It was amazing to watch. Kid strikes out. What's he do? He looks to his dad. I mean, a kid makes a mistake and they're looking to someone. Why? Because they have discovered that there are certain things that I do that mom and dad are pleased with. There are certain things that I do that mom and dad are not pleased with. And so when I do something that I know has displeased them or I think it is, if I've failed, if I've done something that's unsatisfactory, I need to make sure that they still love me. I need to make sure that they still look at me the same way. I don't want to see displeasure on their face. They get into school and then they're introduced to this really... Unbelievable grading system. Everything they do now carries weight of some kind. It's like, oh, you colored a great sheet. You get a sticker. Oh, you ripped the paper in half. You don't get a sticker today. Oh, wow, you've learned your multiplication charts. You get an A in this subject now. Oh, you can't do 10 push-ups. And so you get an unsatisfactory in PE for this quarter of this year. And, and now they bring their grades home to us. And they present us with what they've been doing while they've been away from home from us. And if we're not careful, we look at that and we go, wow, you made good grades. I'm pleased in that. You made bad grades. I'm displeased in that. And we ingrain further in our kids. And I'm not saying we shouldn't want them to strive for excellence, but we ingrain even further in them that there are certain things you do that please me. There are certain things you do that displease me. And we constantly live our lives as adults trying to live up to those standards. Everything that we do now in the relationships of life, we assume is based on the same kind of conditions that I need to do things that please other people and I don't need to do things that displease them. And if I do things that displease them, I need to hide those things. And that's where we get in trouble. And countless relationships and marriages end or are in strife because they were based on conditions that this exists, this marriage exists, this relationship exists, as long as we continue to please one another with the actions of our lives. And when I quit being pleased by you in whatever context that means, I'm out. People are broken and hurt because they're in this condition of pleasing people. And then, at some point along the way, we're introduced to a man named Jesus. And we're introduced to a guy named God. And we are told that he loves us unconditionally. And that we don't have to earn his love. He loved us before we could do anything. I mean, that's a soapbox for me. I talk about it. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
Before I could do anything to earn his love, he loved me. Before I could be good enough, he died for me. God demonstrates his love in this. And, 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 and we're just, how does that even work? And we carry over the conditions that we've understood about how we please people to thinking that we have to please God. And so we read about Enoch. And we read that he was one who was commended as having pleased God. And if you're anything like me, now you are scratching your head, figuring, trying to figure out, how do I please God? What is it that God videotapes and is proud of in my life? What is it that I can accomplish with my life and with my hands? What is it that I can do that God's just up in heaven looking at the angels going, see that? That's my boy. That's my girl. I'm proud of that. I'm pleased with that. And some of us, we live our lives in such a way to earn the affection, earn the acceptance, striving that God would be pleased with us. And I don't think that that's what this is talking about. If we continue reading in Hebrews 11, we read verse 5. I want us to read verse 6. Because it goes hand in hand with what we just read. And it's very, very important for us to get the full picture here. This is what it says in Hebrews eleven six, Continuing the story of Enoch, this is what it says. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Now, if you stop right there. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. You could spin your wheels forever. So can I please God? Is it possible to please God? What is faith to please God? What does that look like? But let's keep reading because this really helps us kind of gain the perspective we need. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Let me say this before we finish our thoughts for today. My performance alone does not earn God's pleasure. My performance alone does not produce God's pleasure towards me. It's not what life's about. And I think what we read here is we read that there are certain things that were attributed to pleasing God and maybe even attributed to Enoch's pleasing God, commended as one who pleased God because without faith it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So let's, let's look at those two things really quick. Believe that he exists and rewards those who seek him. What does this look like? Now, if you look at this idea of believe he exists, maybe your translation doesn't say believe he exists. Maybe it says believes that he is. Believes that he is. That's really a better translation. What we're reading from right here is the NIV, but the, the other translations, King James says it this way, New King James, some of the, uh, English Standard Version says it some, in some of the translations, where it says, believes that he is. Now, if you read that, you could think that all that is required of you is, yeah, I believe there's a God out there somewhere. Absolutely. You know, divine design, something, there's something working. I believe it. That's not what we're talking about. If we understand that the phrase that's used here, believe that he is, this phrase that that he is, is used throughout scripture. It's used over 800 times in the New Testament. Just this phrase, he is, that he is. That phrase from the original language is used over 800 times. And almost every single one of those occurrences deals with one of three things. The nature of God, the character of God, the interaction that God has with humanity. 
So when it talks about that he is or he is, it's not just talking about his specific existence. Like we believe that he exists. It's talking about the totality of who God is. That's a big $2 word there. Okay, what that means is that I'm saying there's a lot to who he is. And I believe it. I may not understand it all, but I believe that he is. And I believe that he's loving and caring. Absolutely. But I also believe he's just. I believe he's righteous. I believe he must punish sin. I I believe that he has this character in him. And we've been talking about this over the last several weeks. And we talk about the Holy Spirit. But he has this character that can be produced in me. That's love and patience and peace and kindness and gentleness and self-control and faithfulness. All these things. those, Those character things can be, they can be born in me. He is those things. And then in the way he deals with us, that he, he deals out of that nature, out of that character towards human beings. And so when you and I look at that, it's not that we believe that there's a God. It's that we believe that he, the individual Jehovah God, the specific God that we're talking about exists in all this, this stuff that we've been talking. He believes in all of that. He believes in this total picture of that, that, that he has this nature and this character and he interacts with humanity. And so if we're going to please God, then we, we can't please God without faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he is, must believe that he exists. Now, to me, that makes complete sense because for me to believe that he is, to believe in all the stuff that I'm just talking about here, I've got to have faith because here's the honest truth. And some of you are going to get mad that I say this and we can talk about it after church. Let's do it. I cannot definitively prove to you today that God exists. Here's what I mean by that. I can't point you to a specific thing that proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that God exists the way that you and I can look, that TV exists right there. There's a television down here if you don't know. It, it exists. This microphone exists, right? Because I can touch it, I can feel it. If we're looking for those same parameters to exist, where I can prove to you that God exists in the same way, we're going to stand here a long time. Because there is a point in that conversation where you and I just have to get to faith and say that I can't see God, but I believe he exists. I believe he's there. there. There's evidence of him all around. The creation obviously cries out to his existence, to who he is, to his nature. We, we, you hear testimonies and stories. There's stories in this room that would give to us evidence and examples that God exists because we've heard from God. We've lived for God. We've responded to the words, the voice of God. And so those things are evidences of the existence of God. But if you're looking for me as an A plus B equals C kind of conversation here to show you exactly how you know that God exists, I'm going to come up short. The very beginning of Hebrews chapter 11, this this chapter that we're, we're spending the next few weeks in Hebrews chapter 11 is again called the faith chapter. It's called the hall of faith. And we really are exposed to the ideas of faith. And this is what it says. Some of you are very familiar with this verse verse. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. It's being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. There is a point when we start talking about the existence of God, when we have to hope for it. We have to be sure in something that we can't see with our eyes. 
and the conversations of our present day culture. This is where, where a lot of people get stuck. You probably have friends or family members like I do. That are so analytical in their lives and in their minds and the way that they conduct themselves that if you can't give them concrete evidence of anything, they won't believe it. And they get stuck on anything related to faith. Or so they say. I would contend that there's a lot of things they can't see that they believe in. I I would contend that there's a lot of things they hope for and they're sure in that they can't prove. But when it comes to believing in a God they can't see, they get stuck And they struggle to jump over that threshold. And I think what we see in the story of Enoch is that if he is one that was commended as having pleased God, then there was something about the faith that he had that we should look to. And if that faith is evidenced in verse 6 of Hebrews 11, it's the idea that I'm believing that he exists. I'm believing that he is. I'm believing that there's a lot to his nature and his character that I can put my hope and my trust in, even though I can't see him. The second thing that we read there is because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him or diligently seek him. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear about rewards related to God, sometimes we get a little uncomfortable because it usually implies one or the other thing here. It implies one of two things. It implies, hey, I just want another, you know, jewel in my crown when I get to heaven. That's a reward. And we believe some of those things. And or maybe I I believe that if I if God's rewarding me, then all the things in my life here on earth are going good. When things are going good, God's rewarding me. When things are not, maybe I'm being punished. And so we, we look at God again as this transactional God who's sometimes vindictive and, and doesn't bless me or doesn't favor me or doesn't reward me. But man, when I'm doing good, when I've done the things I'm supposed to do, then God rewards me. And, you know, my, my finances are better. My marriage is better. My relationships are better. Things are better. My car never, you know, gets in trouble. All, all these things are because I view God maybe through this transactional lens of he's rewarding me for good behavior. It's been ingrained in us. It's what we do to our kids. Of course, I'll buy you this shirt. You made good grades. Yeah, absolutely. You've earned this. I'm going to give you this because you've earned this from me. And we take that and we think this is how God rewards me. But I think if we look at this entire thing in the context, what does it say? It says that we believe that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now, the idea of earnestly seeking or diligently seeking, it means a couple of things. It means to search for. It means to investigate. In its, in its most passionate form, it means to beg or to crave something. And so the idea being here that he rewards those who are searching for. Maybe beyond just searching, they're investigating. Maybe beyond that, they've already investigated and now they, they're begging for it. They're craving him, right? And so I think there's a lot of people on that continuum. I don't think that he only rewards those who have attained some level of spiritual maturity that they know God exists and they believe in the totality of who he is and they've figured out how to live for him and they never make mistakes. I don't believe that's what we're talking about because I think this larger understanding here is that God is a rewarder of those who are searching for him. God is a rewarder of those who are investigating him. God is a rewarder of those who are craving him. There's a lot of room on that continuum that he evidently is rewarding. And so what does this look like? 
What is this? I was just exposed to this quote this morning, but I think this is incredible. I think this is an awesome quote because it kind of lands where we're at here. The goal in life is not moral progression, but participating in the life of God. It's from author Stephen Land. The goal in life is not moral progression, but participating in the life of God. Because here's what you and I think. I think we're, we're so ingrained. It's, it's so ingrained in us that it's about this progression. Right, My baseball analogy, we go from home to first to second to third, and we're going to make it home one day to heaven. I mean, it's just like this is life. We're just living between home and third, and eventually we're going to get called home again. And, 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 and again, we believe a lot of what I'm talking about here, but I think this progression of life is where we find ourselves of thinking that we attain certain levels of spirituality. When really, I don't, I don't think that's what pleasing God looks like. I don't think that that's what God's reward looks is founded upon. And so let's kind of tie all this together. He, Hebrews 11, 5 and 6. I'm going to read them together. It's going to be the first and, and third slide there, guys. I, I want to read it all together. This is what it says. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So let's tie all this together. If it's true that my performance alone does not produce God's pleasure, then what can you and I do to please God? What, what can you and I do to please God? I think we do these two things. I think we, we have enough faith, we conjure up faith, we lean into faith that believes in a God who exists. Not just exists out there somewhere in the cosmos, but he exists in a personal, intimate, connectable, relatable way in our lives. He exists in love and patience and peace and kindness and Gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. He, believe, he exists in those things. He exists in his nature of love and justice, righteousness. He exists through those things. He exists, he is in his relational aspect to us. We do that through faith. Without faith, we can't even approach those things. And then I think we seek him. We search for him. We investigate him. We, we may get to a place where we crave him. And here's what I think. I think there's this cyclical aspect of this here. I think that if we believe in him, like if there's truly a part of our faith that believes in God, and we believe that there's just so much out there that we can't even grasp, I think that we're going to search for that. We're going to seek more of that. We're going to seek answers. We're going to search for the truth. We're going to investigate who he is and what he is and why he is and how he is and how he interacts with us. I think there's, there's part of that. And I think the more that we investigate, the more that we'll believe. And I think that the more we believe, the more we realize we don't know and we have to investigate more. And the more that we investigate, the more that we believe. And I think there comes a point... And maybe it's early and maybe it's late because I don't think it's just this progression in life. But I think there comes a point where we just, we crave the presence of God. We crave relationship with God. And maybe, maybe that's not something you've ever experienced. And I'm, again, I'm not saying that you're falling short in this. Because I think God rewards all of that continuum. I think that's, I really do believe that's there. 
You know, there's this incredible debate in, in the theological circles, and it's found in Scripture. There's a tension in Scripture because of how it's presented to us. Are we saved by faith? Or are we saved by works? Is it faith in God and faith in the work of God that saves us? Or is it the things that we do? And I've heard a lot of sermons. I've read a lot of books. I've had a lot of conversations about these things. And I don't think you can just say one or the other. And I don't think you can just answer by both. Because here's the reality. We are saved because of the work of Jesus Christ. You can't do enough good works to earn the saving grace of God. So it is the the work of God. It's faith in that work, faith and belief that God is the one who saves through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. I believe you got to do that. But then scripture also tells us that faith without works is dead. That That if you've got faith, but there's no works that are evidence of that faith, then what good is the faith to you? I think that looks like diligently seeking him. I think that looks like relationship. I think it looks like Pursuing more of God and allowing him to be more reflected in me. So how do I please God? I think the, you just don't try to perform for God. Don't try to perform for God. Don't assume that you please God the way you please others. Don't perform for God. Pursue God. You please God by pursuing God, not performing for him. Ask the band to come. I I, I don't know how that looks in your life. I'm not sure exactly what what you imagine about God and how to to find him and how to seek him. And I, I don't know how all that works for you. But I think some of us have spent so much of our time performing for God. We've actually lost God in the process. It's just about the performance. It's just about us. It's just about trying to find right standing and be good enough. I think really what we're called to do is pursue him. What does scripture say to us about the nature and the character of God? What does scripture say to us about the nature, the character, the example of his son, Jesus Christ, when he lived on the earth? What examples are we given through the writings of the New Testament, the stories of the Old Testament? They give to us the examples of how we should live, things that we should do, the way we should conduct ourselves. Not so God will love us anymore. Because I would contend that even parents who reward for good grades don't love their kids anymore or less. I got rewards for good grades. My parents bought me stuff. I do that for my kids, right? I don't, I don't think that means I love them anymore or any less. I'm just expressing my pleasure in them. I think there are things you can do to please God. I do. But I think you do it in the context of relationship with Him already. I think you do it understanding that God loves you. God approached you first. Before you could perform, He pursued you. So how do I respond to that? How do I respond to the pursuit of God towards me? I search for him. I investigate him. Sometimes I play hide and seek with my kids. The older they get, the better the game is. But when they're younger, I'm an excellent hider. They can't ever find me, right? It's how I get my quiet time. 
I just get in the car and leave. Right? I don't do that. I'm not a terrible person. You may think today that I don't love my kids. I really do. But what do I have to do when I play hide and seek with my youngest kids? How are they ever going to find me? You know, I'm hiding under the table. I'm hiding behind the couch. And, Daddy, where are you? Daddy, we can't find you. Daddy, where are you? Right before they give up, I just stick my leg out from under the table. I put my arm out from behind the couch. I make a little noise over behind the coffee table. And they come running to me. And when they get to me, here's what they say. I found you, Daddy. I found you. No. I revealed myself to them. That's what God does. That's what God does. If you keep pursuing, He shows up. Scripture tells us in Jeremiah chapter 29, most of you have heard Jeremiah 29, 11. It's on a coffee mug at your house right now. God knows the plans he has for and plans of a future and a hope. That's true. But there's more, there's more to that chapter. You just keep reading. It says that when you seek me with all of your heart, you find me. Do you believe in God? Do you believe that He exists out there somewhere and in this room? Do you believe that God loves you, not based on performance? Do you believe that God pursued you before you could pursue Him? Because without faith to do that, you can't please God. Are you pursuing God? Are you searching for Him, seeking Him, diligently, earnestly, investigating Him, looking for signs of His existence, looking for the things that call out to the existence, the nature, the character, the creative genius of God, the plans and purposes of God for you? Are you searching for that, investigating that, seeking that? Are you pursuing Him? My performance alone does not produce God's pleasure. I think my pursuit of Him does. Today we're going to respond in a really sacred way. We're going to follow the example of Jesus Christ. We're going to take the elements of communion together in response to what we've heard. Folks are getting ready to, to serve you and to wait on you as we, as we take these elements. But here's what's going to happen. The band's going to lead us in a song as, we, as we're given these elements. You're going to hold them. And, and it's, it's two things. You're going to hold in your hand this little cracker wafer bread thing. Just hold that in your hand. And you're going to be given a cup of juice. Hold that in your hand. We're going to talk about these things in just a moment before we take them. But just understand this. Understand this. As you hold these elements, listen to me, they represent the only performance needed for your salvation. They represent to you 
the love of the Father. Every time you think you're not good enough, every time you think you're not measuring up, every time you think you've got to do more good things and more good things and more good things, remember the elements you're about to hold in your hand. They are all the performance needed. You're going to hold in your hand the representation of how much God loves you. God demonstrates his love in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I want to pray and then they're going to distribute these elements. I'm going to ask you to hold them in your hands until we come back together to take them. God, we live in a world that pushes us to perform for our keep. To do enough good things to earn your love. To do enough things that you respond to us in a positive way. But God, I pray that today we would be confronted with the reality of who you are and how you respond to us. What you initiated towards us. God, my performance alone does not please you. But my pursuit of you does. Just pursuit. Seeking you, investigating you. It means that in the midst of pursuit, there can be questions, there can be doubt, there can be fear, there can be worries, there can be uncertainty. But I keep pursuing. I keep pressing toward you. God, today as we hold these elements in our hand, I pray that we would find you there. We'd find your love, we'd find your acceptance, we'd find your grace, we'd find your mercy. And for some of us this morning that came in here uncertain of your love, that we would know you love us. You pursued us first. In Jesus' name.